we're putting shame on top of shame, is someone really likely to be able to open up that narrative that will help us to understand what type of process that person might need to heal from something that has become very destructive. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Therapist Uncensored. This is a podcast that breaks down interpersonal science into practical and understandable tidbits. And as you listen, I can just imagine little light bulbs of insight appearing above your head. Absolutely. You're going to be surprised and touched at what you learn about yourself as you get more accurate and in-depth view of your mind and your heart, and as you figure out those close to you. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hi, in today's episode, we're going to take a deep dive into the area of addiction. Such an important topic that touches almost every one of us on some level. And our guests today are Brad Kennedy, who is the Vice President and Executive Director of the Driftwood Recovery Program, also known as the Driftwood Courageous Recovery Program, and Dr. Vanessa Kennedy, who is the program's Director of Psychology. And the reason our guests are on the show is because I invited them after meeting them at a professional event where I got into a conversation about their conceptualization of addiction. And I became completely impressed and intrigued, to be honest with you, with the depth of knowledge that um, they have and have incorporated into their program about attachment and neurobiology, trauma, mind-body integration, and the whole way of conceptualizing and therefore treating the area of addiction and mental health. So with that, I got really inspired and called them up and asked them to come on the program because I feel like it is just a great bit of knowledge to give out to our listeners. So um, before we get started, I'm going to turn it over to Sue for just a second. Hey, everybody, we are super excited to finally have a webinar for you. This has been requested quite a bit. And we are happy to be able to provide it on Friday, April 12th from 2 to 4. And what's really cool about this is that if you sign up and register and you aren't able to make that exact time, don't worry about it. No sweat. It'll be recorded and provided to participants. So that's awesome. And here's the thing. If you are a patron for us, basically the platinum patrons get it for free and all the other patrons will get it for half off. And basically what we're going to do is we're going to cover attachment, neuroscience, you know, the basics, some of those things that we've covered before, but then we're going to try to take it a little further and do Q&A. So you can submit your questions ahead of time and it'll be a double goodie. So there you go. Okay. And now to today's episode, let's get right to it. Yes. Yeah, so welcome Brad and Vanessa. I'm so appreciative of both of y'all being here. Y'all have a wealth of experience and knowledge throughout your career dealing with lots of levels of treatment of addiction. For the listeners out there going, okay, like, I don't think this has any relevance to me um, because I'm fine, or maybe it does, but I'm curious, do I, do I have something uh, to be tuning into here? What is addiction? How do y'all define the concept of addiction? I think the 
textbook definition might follow some pretty rigid criteria, but the broader in real life definition is something that can expand into various behaviors that interfere in your life and might keep you from really living the values that you have fully. So anything from abusing alcohol to spending too much time watching Netflix to binge eating to any other kind of behavior that might help you to avoid some discomfort and gratify you kind of short term is something that might kind of escalate into a problem. So something that you really do that you engage in sort of crave for the short run that makes you immediately feel good, but that, you know, creates a problem or creates long-term negative effects, but you keep doing it, right? So you like, I know it's best to get off this Netflix. When I was watching Breaking Bad, I knew, okay, go to bed, go to bed, <laughs> but I'd watch yes. another one. So there's a lamp that would, would say I was addicted to Breaking Bad or so help me understand. How do I know when it gets to be a problem? Addiction is such a loaded term. The idea that you're using a behavior, a substance, but somehow it interferes with you being the person that you want to be. That's a pretty broad definition. So if we think of any of our own behaviors, I certainly had a lot of caffeine and sugar this morning in my coffee. Am I routinely and habitually addicted to having coffee every morning? guilty as charged. So am I addicted to caffeine? Probably. And I would have a very specific, you know, response, both physiologically and psychologically to disrupting that behavior. Now, if we broaden that to think of all kinds of things in our modern life, probably our phones, are we addicted to checking our phones? The data and the amount of screen time that pops up and I'm informed about each week would indicate, yeah, I'm probably addicted to that too. The deeper question then becomes, is it stopping or blocking me somehow from the path or I think in terms of values or life that I want to live? That's a slightly more complex problem. So not everybody with a phone or a coffee in their hand is addicted to those things, but it raises a question when it starts to disrupt parts of our lives. Wow, I love how you put that, Brad, because I think it makes every listener go, oh, wait, I can relate. This isn't just the person that's struggling with alcohol that can't put the bottle down. This kind of applies to all of us in our lives. What are our addictive things? What are we doing that actually in the long run doesn't enhance our lives, but we keep doing it? And why? And how do you know then it becomes a problem? I'm teasing about my Breaking Bad, but, you know, sometimes it costs me healthy days the next day because I watched too many episodes that one day. But in general, I could kind of go, okay, I need to stop doing that, you know, and thankfully the episode just ends anyway. But, but um, there is a way then I could reflect and think this is not really what I want to be doing. And then I can readjust. Now, there's other things that you brought up that like maybe even work. I don't know. Like who, do we have a healthy relationship to everything in our life? Probably not. So it's a great dialogue to be having. How do we know when it is a problem? And then once we figure that out, what do we do about it? It starts with awareness, right? And maybe this conversation or beginning to think in some way where you're becoming more aware of those habits and the impact. Am I using them somehow to manipulate my mood? which isn't necessarily bad. And we take our terminology for it might be a curious, non-judgmental stance. I'm going to be really curious, meaning my first 
response may not be the one that I'm going to go with. I'm going to keep questioning myself. Okay, I like coffee. Well, why do I like coffee? And getting really curious about it. That's not, actually, that's not as easy as we think it is to find curiosity. Right. You know, It sounds easy. Just get right. curious, right? Why do I need the caffeine every morning? Why do I need the wine every night? Like, it sounds like an easy thing, doesn't it, to be <laughs> curious. But as we know, like, actually finding a state of curiosity is hard, especially if it's something we want to protect. Because usually we're doing these things because it's helping us cope with something inside our body that we may not want to know about. So I guess what I'm saying is it seems easy to fall in a place of defensiveness. Right. Of course I need coffee every day. And I read research that says coffee's good for me. So I can easily find ways to defend myself about what I'm doing that makes it make sense. Absolutely. And I think part of setting up an environment or relationships where we can allow, I think people in life often give us feedback on things that are out of our awareness, right? That's Whether true. we like them or not, <laughs> unfortunately. But the idea that am I open and in a true mindfulness, kind of old fashioned Zen definition of being here now, are my eyes wide open to my current existence? Am I hearing and seeing things Children and parents are great at pointing those things out over and over again. <laughs> so yeah, and it, are your ears open to what what they're seeing, or are we defending somehow? And I think the nice That's part true. of the curious part is, what am I defending against? And that may not be as easy to identify, right? That might take a little more reflection. Well, also, I would think if you find yourself defending, that might create some curiosity. Like, why am I coming up with the fact that research says caffeine's good? And yeah. like, you know, and I think if we slow down, I like what you're saying. I think if we slow down, we can actually feel that the things we're coming up with, we can feel that twinge of anxiety that comes with us. Wine every night, it doesn't bother me because research says, or because I feel fine the next day. And what I hear you saying is, one is slowing down and listening to yourself. And the other is listening to some other people who might be saying, hey, I've really noticed that you can't seem to put your phone down in most of the conversations I'm having with you. But what you're saying is that's sort of a sign of other people are indicating that it's interfering. That's already a sign that something's going on. Is that what you're saying? Right. You know, maybe someone commenting and noticing, hey, you're really sleepy at work. Or what I often hear, I'm not fully present with the people I want to be present with. They tell me, they say, hey, I'm on my phone. Where are you? You're not, you don't seem like you're really here right now in some way. So like what you're saying, Brad, we're talking about awareness and openness and curiosity and finding that state. And I guess it makes me curious is like, there it seems to be there's a continuum. Like how would one being curious, we can know that we have too much, we're doing too much caffeine. I'm certainly aware of that for myself or holding the phone too much. And so how do we distinguish between that, yes, I have this and I'm maybe compulsively looking at my phone and addiction? Great question. The answer for the, for each person is going to be a bit different, right? It depends in my way of thinking, and I think in the idea of being curious about it, is what is then interfering with the individual you would like to be. If mm. your value is being a fully present partner, a fully present friend, a fully present parent or coworker, and the phone is somehow interfering with that, then maybe we need to look more deeply at it. And I imagine if the phone is interfering and you've realized it and you've tried to stop doing that, so it's right. something that 
we're doing that kind of gives us something, but it also takes something away. And I've tried to stop doing it and can't. Is that what you're saying? That- yes. Yeah. So then it gets into that whole the idea of commitment or committing to changing something in a way when you feel like that behavior has become habitual or compulsive to the point where it's difficult for you to have the power to change that. And we can all probably think of different examples of what that might look like in terms of a moment when you have to realize that your coping skill to change that behavior or that you can be compulsive about your thoughts or other things is no longer effective. So I think intuitively we take on an approach of kind of doubling down on our original efforts, which may be the recipe for poor coping strategies, right? Is we're going to do the same thing with more frequency and more intensity. We can all think of examples of when we've done that. Something isn't working for us. We just double down on our efforts to do it in the same way but stronger and more frequently. So you mean when we try to stop something, we can't, we actually intensify the action to do it? Is it the fear of letting that go? Like the fear, because what we're doing likely is to cope with some feeling that we have that we may not want to have. Right. So what you're saying is if we we start to say, I think I'm going to, we'll just take the easy one right now because most of us can probably relate to putting the phone down so it's not interfering with our relationship with our kids that you're saying the more that maybe we start to intervene on that for ourselves, we might find ourselves doing it more. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think we'd use whatever intuitive coping strategy that we had devised. So if it was putting it in a drawer, we're Mm going to keep putting it in a drawer, but maybe pulling it out. And we might realize it doesn't work. And I think the idea of being truly curious or a little bit experimental with changing that behavior would be the idea that we'd try something that was kind of new and creative. And my definition of new is it make me feel a little weird about trying something different Mm -hmm. and maybe it's not our normal intuitive way of handling it so we might think of strategies that aren't just doubling down on our strengths over and over again or what we're thinking in our mind but trying something totally new and creative that makes sense because if you're trying something new and creative you're actually going to be kind of trying different areas of your mind and your brain and it sort of maybe will give you access out of that sort of more compulsive habitual action into something that's more novel i guess it would increase your awareness of it so the word addiction comes up i think most people think kind of conflict defensiveness around that terminology mm-hmm. so if we thought okay we have a compulsive or destructive kind of pattern that could be labeled as addictive in some way. How do I deal with that in a way that's creative and collaborative? Mm -hmm. The treatment for any of these things in the end will become based on being creative and collaborative, Mm. not defensive and avoidant. Ah, I love what you're saying. Mm -hmm. The the creative and the collaborative. So kind of looking at it and thinking, am I being defensive and avoidant? I'll do that tomorrow. I'll start tomorrow. I really need it today. And I can think of the excuses, but I'm still doing that behavior that I told myself I wanted to stop doing that would be better for my own values with my relationship with my kids. If I'm not standing there holding my phone in the kitchen. So if I'm doing something novel and more creative and connecting, oh, it was creative. And what was the other one? Collaborative. Collaborative. Right. Okay. Right. So creative and collaborative, it's already putting me more in a novel situation and collaborative means I'm connected. I'm more connected to my environment rather than trying to do something on my own in my more familiar defensive style. Yeah. And our most severe states too, when our addictive 
patterns take over, our compulsive habitual patterns, it tends to isolate us from others, not mm-hmm. bring us closer to others. And so the idea that we're going to collaborate in some way, maybe the collaboration starts in a mindful sense. I'm going to collaborate with myself because I've become alienated from myself in some way through these behaviors that are kind of not making me aware of my emotional states at the time. Oh, that's really insightful. Uh, and I, if we think about, if we move along the continuum between having the phone out and interfering to something maybe more significant and severe with bigger cost, let's say alcohol or drug use or gambling or something that's really creating havoc in my life, um, I guess I would imagine my defenses are going to be a lot higher because likely those behaviors are probably trying to help me with even deeper issues. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. And I think also the social stigma of the, the kind of hierarchy of addictive behaviors that you just described forces someone's behaviors to become more isolative, uh, mm. more deceptive because of people that may be close to you are not going to accept those things in the same way they would sugar or phones in our examples. Oh, that's a great example. So kind of being aware of where we fall, if you're saying if we start feeling a need to hide something or to avoid contact with people. Um, I know, Vanessa, at one point in time when we were speaking, you said that you saw addiction as a, a problem of connection, that that's the biggest underlying issue. Can you say more about that? Definitely. I think that that's a, a big theme in uh, working with addiction is that uh, individuals find themselves making their worlds smaller and smaller. Originally, the addiction or the substance or the behavior might be something fun. You know, mm-hmm. it might be it might start out as something recreational that connects us with others and kind of serves as that social lubricant that Brad was describing and lowers our anxiety. Once it starts to escalate to a point where we are becoming more deceptive. We are withdrawing from friends and family and important relationships. We are isolating ourselves and confining ourselves to smaller and smaller circles or spaces. I had one client, I think I was sharing this with you, describe how her world just became smaller and smaller by virtue of the fact that she needed to hide her use and and deceive those around her. So she withdrew from social events, started confining herself to her home. Then her living room was too exposed of an environment and she withdrew to her room. And then before she knew it, she was isolated to her bed. Mm. And, you know, just we find ourselves just becoming more and more disconnected from the people that we love and care about and the things that we enjoy. So addressing that underlying sense of alienation is is a key factor in getting people to reconnect with their values. And do you see that, like in that instance, that the addiction to the substance, like people think of chemical dependency as literally a chemical, I think of the terminology, chemical dependency, I'm dependent on this chemical. I find that sometimes in, I don't know if y'all would agree with me, that the focus on that can really inhibit people from understanding the deeper aspects of chemical dependency. So was it because she was chemically dependent that her world got smaller and, and smaller? What are your thoughts about that? 
I think that originally or initially in the cycle that it can start off as a chemical dependency. We start to have physiological responses to that substance. We can develop withdrawal symptoms and physical discomfort, sweats and chills and stomach problems, all those kind of physiological things that might make us turn toward the substance for relief. Then we might build up a physiological tolerance to that substance and need to increase the amounts that we're using to achieve the the desired effect. But then those emotional consequences start to get involved where we feel shame or guilt. We feel sadness. We feel stuck and isolated. And we might struggle to reach out for help or be fully transparent about what's going on because of that shame cycle and not, you know, feeling like we're meeting our full potential. So absolutely, things can kind of evolve over time to involve different spheres of our functioning from physiological all the way to feelings and emotions. When we think of the concept, just even the word chemical dependency, I find that sometimes people struggle with the idea of whether their behavior is on that trajectory that you just described, Vanessa, of increasing and becoming worse and worse and worse, because often they're trying to figure out, just think of the concept, am I dependent to that chemical? It's as if it's a yes or no. Am I dependent in a people wait? Well, I'm not dependent on that chemical. I'm just using more of it because I'm depressed or I'm sad. So I think that can be almost a block to looking at our own process. And I wonder about the relationship between trauma and the development of addiction. What are y'all's thoughts on that? Unfortunately, the, the answer isn't as clear cut as yes or no to the chemical dependency idea. But really thinking of, you know, three distinctive areas, the idea that we have a genetic psychological component to what is going on. Uh, Predisposition to substances can be one part of it. We certainly have a social aspect to it. Perhaps, you know, the idea that we're growing up in an environment or we're socialized in a culture that has certain ideas about addiction and mindfulness and awareness of feelings and ways to treat those. You know, watching any kind of event on TV, you're going to see a cognitive fusion between excitement and pleasure and consuming beer and performing athletically at the same time, right? (laughs) Um, And then also that idea, so we're growing up with a certain mindset and approach to that. And then also the idea that we have pain and that pain Mm -hmm. can be classified broadly as trauma and trauma doesn't have to reach the severity and destruction of, say, something like 9-11. It can also be the idea of being ostracized, kind of civilization's oldest tool to push us to the side. And that could happen early on in school and being bullied or pushed to the outside of any social group or being rejected in a relationship. Those are very painful. The three of those things working together produces a really a really fertile ground for someone to look for a behavior that helps them to avoid the painful conditions of life. And maybe that's called addiction or chemical or a dependency on something. It makes us very ripe for a solution that is going to get us out of disturbing and distracting thoughts that can feel very hurtful and painful. So in in other words, it's like addiction itself can be a way of attempting to solve a deeper problem of the experience of pain or trauma that goes unresolved. Absolutely. And I think as we work to get to the point and awareness of how 
an addiction or painful experience has impacted someone and resulted in a destructive, addictive behavior, almost always you can understand how somebody comes by it very fairly. That's the curiosity again in the non-judgmental approach is it almost makes sense that someone might be utilizing that behavior. Now, is it an optimal path? Is it healthy? Is it a preferred way of going about it? Absolutely not. But it makes sense that someone would choose a solution that numbed their mind or disconnected them from other attachments or took out that higher functioning higher level executive functioning part of their brain because maybe that's overly active due to these situations. So it's an understandable, like it's a compassionate, it's a way of compassionately looking at why you would develop that rather than a shameful way of seeing yourself as weak. An addiction as a solution to a very difficult, painful problem within you that needs compassion and care to get through. Absolutely. And I think it also helps provide a path forward. We can't fix what we don't know. And not that we're fixing addiction or fixing a life condition, but if we're going to create a co-create a path moving forward that is effective, we can't slap generic insights and coping skills onto something that we don't understand. So treating the trauma or the ostracism that might come with mental health and addiction all concurrently makes sense as a path forward. Yeah, it seems like only that it's, it's essential for a path forward, isn't it? Like, I think that's... What I'm hearing is like if the trauma and the isolation and the you brought up the psychological, the social, that if without treating what is fueling those patterns, you really are going to miss the boat with someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other part to that is the the basic idea that we're trying to understand these things enough by being curious and non-judgmental, and it makes sense that you're going to have tried to push many of these things out, either with substances or without. So we're kind of creating a new process for increased self-awareness. And in terms of attachment, it kind of forms the basis for that, the idea that we're going to be known to ourselves. Mm -hmm. Much like every great concept in counseling and therapy, the most simple concepts become the most difficult, the idea of being known is extremely difficult for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of some early trauma experiences as things in our lives that create these wounds. And, you know, I think kind of a more traditional view of chemical dependency or addiction might be loaded with stigma in the sense that we think of what's wrong, you know, what's Mm -hmm. wrong with you that you can't kind of stop this behavior on your own. Why can't you just put it down? Why can't you just leave it? Seen as, seen as weak or like a moral decision or a failing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think when we can change that narrative to be more of what what happened, you know, how, mm-hmm. how do we heal what happened early on in your life that might have scarred you or wounded you? And looking at the addiction more as something that you've been doing to, to try to put a Band-Aid on that, you know, to, mm-hmm. to try to numb that pain versus something that you're doing that is meant to hurt other people in some way. And unfortunately, that's often a consequence of that behavior. But that that's building in a more compassionate stance and helping a person. Yeah, I really like what you're saying, because it takes the, I think so often, especially 
our awareness of our own use of something comes through hostility from somebody else and anger as if you're just making this choice to hurt me, right? Like you just keep doing this. It keeps hurting me. Why don't you care? And it can be unintentionally, it's, it's a desperate attempt to try to help somebody quit doing something that's hurting themselves and other people. But it sounds like it can really exacerbate that feeling of the shame and the pain that may already be connected to deep trauma that the substance is also trying, like what you're saying, Vanessa, trying to numb, right? So it it seems like we can be easily exacerbating the issue while trying to help when we're approaching it through anger and, and shame and frustration. Yeah, I think when I first started in the field, a lot of people described addiction as a shame-based disease. And that's an interesting concept, especially if it's met with more shame as you approach a, a process that's supposed to help you recover or change from it. So again, we want to think of what is a different way of approaching that. If we're putting shame on top of shame, is someone really likely to be able to open up that narrative that will help us to understand what type of process that person might need to heal from something that has become very destructive? I really appreciate what you guys are both saying and bring into the program. And Vanessa, you y'all are both started to talk about the concept of attachment, which is one of the reasons I was very fascinated with the way that you guys approach the treatment and we think about trauma and things that happen, and often we're looking for those things that we're consciously aware of. But as we know, a lot of trauma can happen in utero. It could happen while with a stressed mother during pregnancy. There's so much stress. Well, when an infant is faced with trauma and they can't escape and they can't stop it and they have no agency, one of the very healthy methods is to learn how to numb your body and to learn how to distance and disconnect and stay away from what may feel traumatic to them. And so we've talked a lot about different attachment styles and what develop out of that. And I am heartened that that the concept of attachment has reached so many treatment programs now that really helping people understand from a non-shaming place that the reasons they've gone towards things that could numb them and disconnect them at one point in their life was actually very healthy and very necessary. And yet to continue it, it becomes like we've been talking about it no longer. It becomes against their value and they need to help shifting that. Yeah. I love to hear you use the word agency because I think of a lot of what we're trying to do, whether it r- runs a range of any anywhere on the spectrum of something that could be addictive is reestablish agency or the mm. ability to initiate change. Can you regain your intrinsic power to make something happen for yourself that moves you away from a destructive pattern and towards a healthier pattern. And I think acceptance and commitment therapy, a lot of people have taken that concept of agency and provided some interesting ways to do that as adults when we're stuck in patterns that maybe we're somewhat aware of that we've created or why they're there and some will be aware of and sometimes maybe we will never be in touch with the early early onset of trauma that may have happened through things that are outside of our control we didn't ask for and we didn't want right, right. and i think getting adults to that place or adolescence or anyone is that idea that you didn't want and you didn't ask for this, but we were at this point and how might we treat that to get you back to the person you'd like to be? 
it provides me a lot of excitement and gets me kind of fired up about the work because I love to see people get back to that passionate version of their identity and their self. And usually addiction is not part of that. But the idea that you're going to acknowledge the destructive pattern without creating that strength-based identity or recapturing the person you want to be can, can be difficult as well. I'm like you, Brad. I get super excited with the idea of helping people like go for their own agency. It crosses my mind though, as we're talking about addiction really being connected to the necessity throughout their lives of maybe feeling they need to push away and to deep painful emotions. And then we've pulled away from individuals like to help them to push into the idea of gaining their own agency. It seems like it could be really scary. Yeah. What an overwhelming proposition that might be to be in that role where someone's reaching out to you for help or you're having that insight yourself that, hey, there's some things that are happening in my life. The solution involves connecting more to myself and to other people. That would seem like a pretty irrational, very frightening kind of idea to jump into. And I think in the mentalizing terms, they talk a lot about epistemic mistrust, the idea that both your brain, your primary attachments, and your social connections have somehow failed you. Then someone shows up on the scene in the form of some type of helping role, therapist, whatever it might be, and says, but hey, I'm, I'm here to help you. It seems irrational that you would reach your arm out in that way to connect, even though that may be the solution that helps you to move forward. So you're kind of in a double bind, right? Like somebody's reaching out for help, you know you need it, but the whole mechanisms in your mind says this is unsafe. Absolutely. And I think it only makes sense that that would produce a hopeless state, Mm -hmm. right? A state that helps your brain avoid the pain of acknowledging the isolation, the trauma of creating a role that has forced you into deception and feeling unseen and unheard. And then you're left with the quandary that somehow it's going to be both positive and possible to reach out to a a new attachment, despite the fact that many others are at the time, isolated from you Mm. and in the past may have hurt you in some way. That makes so much sense. So like we're we're talking about it from a baseline of attachment. And if your core feeling is that attachment is not a safe experience and you've learned to be on your own, let's say for for longtime listeners, more in the blue, that the idea of sitting down now and say, oh, you as a therapist or you as a, I'm going to reach out and cross the lines and attach to you and trust you that's a scary proposition. Yeah, especially when you have a coping skill, which is very powerful, Mm -hmm. right? A substance that is going to be more powerful and predictable than human relationships. Right. Well, I would imagine substance or or any other seriously addictive behaviors. Yeah. Yeah, I can control those. I can adjust the amount of time or the amount that I'm consuming. I'm going to get a response out of that. I'm going to get the chemicals in my body that's going to make me feel the illusion of connection, the illusion of power, the illusion of agency for whatever that is, whether it's chemical dependency or gambling, or I can control what happens inside me and titrate the amount because I'm the one in control. Yeah. The acceptance that somehow I'm going to trade that for a very painful process that is nonlinear as we get to explore a person's identity and attachment style and all these other things. That's a pretty tough commitment on somebody's part. Oh my gosh. And I stopped to think about it now and I can even feel it. We're not only going to do that, we're going to do that 
by taking away that very resource, and sometimes in a very startling way, the proposition of taking out the way that resource that has been calming and soothing to you. That could, it makes me anxious just really listening as we're talking about it. Right, absolutely. And I think that one of the keys in kind of changing that idea that, you know, if we have this established attachment style that we've developed early on in life through our experiences with our caregivers, and maybe we're, you know, like you said, more falling on the blue end of the spectrum where we're more dismissive and avoidant, and we've learned to be very self-reliant, it feels like a mountain in front of us that we're trying to overcome. And I think that one of the first things that we need to do when we're in that state is to really look at how we might feel in control of the short-term kind of effects of putting a substance in our body or engaging in a behavior that's satisfying. But overall, when we kind of zoom out and look at the big picture, we're feeling out of control. And we might not have the resources to make a change. And we might have to make that leap of faith and go against every everything, every fiber in our being that's telling us not to trust the outside world to entrust maybe a professional that, that has had some experience kind of in this world and, and might have the solution. How powerful to make that step, like to be sitting out there and thinking, okay, if I would have to have certain level of trust that that step could, uh, could make such a difference in, in my life. And I imagine that you need help making that step. Absolutely. I mean, the courage that it takes actually to reach out and blow your cover and let mm-hmm. somebody know the state that you're in and that you're struggling is huge. And it's something that I think deserves to be honored and mm-hmm. um, respected. So if you're able to take that self-compassionate stance toward yourself and say, I'm a human being struggling to kind of make it in this world. And I'm finding myself in a state that many other people have found themselves in previously who have gotten better. That might set up a situation where you're able to take that leap and take a courageous step in helping yourself. Oh, yeah. And it really, I like what you're saying in terms of reaching out, because I mean, if you think about it, we can't do practically anything in isolation, right? And so what you're saying is just a kind of how courageous it is to make that step to yourself. And then it sounds like we said one of the first steps would be to reach out to say, I need help and to try to do it a courageously and one without shame, because what you're needing help with is not weak will or refusal to deal with something that's harmful. It's really needing help dealing with this underlying sense of pain and trauma and disconnect. And we need connection. That's a first, that's what you're saying. We need connection to do that, don't we? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a vital aspect. You can't do it alone. Yeah, and the idea that as, as supporting anyone, either as a professional or friend or loved one, is that we need those micro movements in the beginning mm-hmm. of someone's change process are to be celebrated because that may be one of the most crucial steps in helping someone commit to a, a longer term lifestyle change if that if it's hit that severity. Oh, um, that makes sense. I worked with a colleague who described it as ballooning and buffooning, right? Like <laughs> authentically getting very excited and kind of teaming up with that person to celebrate those moments. Maybe it's, I'm considering uh, like going back to a student role and picking up a course catalog. That's a huge step because 
Epistemic mistrust is about hopelessness. Every step we take forward is about becoming hopeful. And hopefulness happens both in terms of exploration and commitment. So someone doesn't have to commit before they explore what the options could be. None of us have probably committed to many things like that. When I'm thinking of committing to my health and wellness, I'm going to check out the gym before I join. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. And getting excited about that versus we often fear so much the outcomes and they're very severe around addiction. And in certain cases, this may not be possible. But the idea that we're going to celebrate that that path as somebody moves towards a healthier lifestyle for themselves. Pretty exciting stuff. It really is. It's very exciting. What would you recommend? I guess we're talking about the individual struggling, but I guess it's also so coming to some realization to take a step. But what you're saying also is that there's those people in your lives that love you or maybe you are out there as a listener struggling with somebody in your life as, as most of us have someone in our life that we love deeply that struggles with addiction. It's really hard to be in that role, isn't it? Perhaps one of the most challenging roles to be in, in this whole addicted family system, right, is that your love for that individual and your care for them makes us react in ways that can really produce produce the dynamics we spoke about earlier. They can make it hard for an individual not to feel shamed, not to feel forced to commit to something, and we want to protect them. We want to protect the people we love from pain, and that puts us in a very, at times, dysregulated state. The other part is much like anything else that we're far too close to. It's very difficult to see things in a truly objective fashion. So the idea is that you're going to show some excitement or pride in helping them take the micro steps that move towards commitment or pre-contemplation or whatever it might be may feel totally impossible if you have a loved one that's living in your house that may be actively using because Mm -hmm. you're fearful that you're going to open up a door and see them in a compromised or inebriated state. Or induce shame in them if you bring it up or anger. Yeah, and a lot of our behaviors will be fueled by fear. Right. Right. We'll approach it in a way because of our own fear rather than sharing the same tact that we would ask the person who's considering looking at their addiction. Can you name your the emotion that's fueling that behavior? You're scared for that mm-hmm. person or you're, you're fearful for that they're going to overdose or whatever it might be. And we will, towards the end, even talk more specifics and we will have in our show notes some resources. So I'll be asking you guys right at the end of the interview to just really give us some specific resources and so you'll have access out there. And it's so, because what we're saying is not only can the individual, I mean, I think this is part of what you're saying, not only can the individual that's struggling with the addiction not do it alone. If you're the family member, it is hard and painful and you have all of your own stuff of fear and that you can't do that alone and to reach out for help like that this is bigger than you. This is not just happening in your system. It's happening in so many systems and this is an intricate thing that's happening related to trauma, related to history. It's much bigger than a decision. And I think if we can get nothing else to the listeners today, although we're giving them so much and I'm so grateful for you too, is that do not do this alone. Feel like it's an unshaming thing and to reach out. And if you're somebody that needs to help a family member or a friend, go get some help and talk and get some support yourself. 
Right. I think that's one of the things that can so often be overlooked is what the plight of the family member is and making sure that family members know that there are resources for them too. And mm-hmm. going through this process is super important. And as you said, that can be another element of disconnection that enters into the system and makes the family member feel alienated when they don't know that there's support out there for them too. That's really great. And and let's talk a little bit more about treatment because you guys have some amazing expertise in it. And I know that treatment for chemical dependency specifically and, mo- and lots of addiction really has a very high relapse rate in general overall. And I think it is improving. But one of the things that I got excited when I met you guys is your emphasis on just what we're talking about now, but really looking at the whole person and really focusing on what their initial attachment connections are and what is their relationship to trauma and really treating the whole person, not just the substance use. And I'm, I'm not saying that all treatment programs are just treating the substance use. This is not an indication of anybody's treatment program, but I got really, really excited when I heard the depth of which you guys approach the whole person. So could y'all speak a little bit to y'all's belief about if I'm out there and I'm thinking about going to treatment myself, or if I have a loved one and I want to get them help, whether it's, uh, you know, what would I be looking for? What do you feel like is a really essential ingredient? Well, we've described a lot of the process of how people become alienated from themselves through this process. So I think a lot of what can help, whether it's from outpatient to any level of treatment up to residential or whatever it might be, is the idea that you're going to reestablish connections with individuals. And that's easier said than done. If you're feeling in a really low place, both physically and psychologically, how is it that you're going to jump into a small community? But that's really what we're trying to create is a healing community where people feel safe and secure to share their true thoughts and feelings. True thoughts and feelings come out with when you don't feel judged or forced into a role that feels like they're provoking a false self. Compliance isn't the same as change. And like you were talking about around some of the outcomes around treatment, historically, a lot of treatment has focused on compliance to a certain modality. And there's many different modalities, whether you're talking about AA or DBT models or other things. And Can you th- say a little bit more what you mean by compliance to that modality? Yeah. So I think of it like playing the role of good student. And if you attend all the lectures and groups, you attend your individual sessions, you check all the boxes, that's wonderful. But it may or may not produce the result that you came for. And the result that you came for might is to clearly define the person you'd like to be and how the absence of an addictive pattern is going to help you to thrive in that environment. And so change should be difficult. There should be rocky roads. You should be in an environment that helps you to think of those blind spots. That's where the change really happens, right? I think in mentalizing, we call it mind blind, the idea that things are coming out of your awareness. You weren't aware that you didn't know that thing. And maybe that can be a good thing or a difficult thing to encounter, but creating an environment that does that. The other 
components, I believe, are the idea that you're going to use evidence-based practices. So in addition to just what is going on with the addiction, what has been proven to be helpful as coping strategies for the inevitable cravings, the idea that you're going to feel anxious, uncomfortable, dysregulated in your emotions in some way, and try to utilize practices that actually have some research to back up that they're effective that can at times be absent from the treatment experience. A good treatment experience also teaches you how to live a recovery lifestyle. We haven't talked much about the concept of recovery, but that's the idea that you're going to define how you're going to thrive in your life that doesn't involve addictive patterns. I think another essential component to look for is a program or a, a treatment approach that addresses underlying mental health issues. I think that mental health diagnoses and co-occurring anxiety or depression are very common and often coincide with using substances. So making sure that you're using the right tool for the job when you're looking for resources to help you is, is super important. Attending some type of recovery program like Alcoholics Anonymous or Refuge Recovery can be super helpful and integral. But if you're not also addressing your anxiety or other mental health issues in the appropriate manner, be it medication, individual therapy, group therapy, whatever that might be, you're not really looking at the whole problem. So you're saying that y'all are both saying really emphasize a comprehensive approach. And that's not necessarily, I mean, there's a continuum of treatment. There's, you're struggling mildly with, with substances and you could do individual therapy all the way up to it's become a huge and chronic issue. But what you're saying, I think, is that you want to make sure it's a comprehensive thing, that you're not just going to say abstinence and just take that one part out of your life. You're saying you have to really, because that's, likely related to hiding all sorts of feelings and covering up and disconnection. So you're saying they really need the broader where you're really hitting all the issues of if you take the substance away, depression could hit anxiety. And if you leave that alone and you just look at abstinence, you're going to likely miss the core. Right. Absolutely. There have been numerous situations where we've observed that when the substances are you know, removed from the picture and a person is really looking at their lives in a bigger context, another behavior might emerge like an eating disorder, or maybe there are some obsessive compulsive kind of thought patterns that, that are underlying there that maybe the substances put a bandaid on for a mm -hmm. while that really need more effective long-term treatment. So really making sure sure to have a comprehensive approach and making sure you're understanding all those pieces is really critical. Gabor Mate talks a lot about addiction being a form of pain and whether that is pain or trauma. And I think thinking of trauma in kind of global terms from things that we historically kind of put with trauma to other things that can be damaging to our sense of self. And the idea that we need to treat that and we need to understand it. And that may or may not fall neatly into one of the evidence-based practices, but it needs to have room for consideration. The other part as well is that treatment, the broader a context we can bring in for somebody's recovery, the more likely they are to thrive. 
And Peter Fonagy used to describe it as being the conductor of an orchestra in which you need more strings or more timpani or whatever the instrument might be, that it's not just a solo performance in which we're going to focus on only the individual that's in treatment. As we bring in the reality of the situation in the context of their life, we'll have a deeper understanding for what the potential triggers or barriers to the recovery might be. Brad, I really like what you said about compliance-based treatment versus a true, genuine connection to a healing environment and a community. I think that one of the things that's integral in the success of any type of treatment, whether you're working with an individual therapist or attending AA or you are in a group therapy that you meet with once a week, you want to get connected. That is essential. I mean, we've we've spent a lot of time really talking about all the different factors that might lead somebody to isolate, get disconnected from what's important to them, disconnected from relationships, and turn to substances. And now we want to kind of reverse that. We want to help people take individual gradual steps necessary to lead them back toward a connection to others. One of the things that I think can make someone more susceptible to relapse over time is not staying connected. And I've heard individuals really talk about how that happens for them when maybe they're engaged in a treatment program or attending 12-step meetings, for example, and maybe they're sitting in the back corner and leaving early from the meeting. Or maybe they're not working with a sponsor who they can check in with every day to get support around you know stress that they're having at work or maybe fleeting cravings that they're having when they drive by a liquor store, for example. So they might be being compliant and that they're going to the meetings and they're showing up and they're attending, but you're saying if they're staying peripheral and not engaged, it's a whole different experience? Exactly. That's one of the easiest ways to fall back into old patterns and not be transparent and honest with the people around you that can help hold you accountable and support you. So uh, one of the things that I think is, is huge that we need to also address for individuals coming into this experience is what is their style of connection? What is their attachment style? What is underlying their fear or avoidance or maybe preoccupation and, and anxiety around connection? And one of the ways that we might assess for those things is using something as easy as a, as a questionnaire, asking them, you know, how do you feel in relationships? Do you tend to feel preoccupied with the idea that maybe a significant person in your life might abandon you if they see something vulnerable about you? You know, asking those types of questions to understand if maybe somebody falls more toward the red, the, the kind of anxious, preoccupied attachment style, or maybe green, where they're pretty comfortable going to other people when they're having struggles and, and receiving help. Or maybe they're, they're a little bit more dismissive and avoidant and kind of tend to distance themselves and be more self-reliant when it comes to managing their emotions. Really understanding the underpinnings of their style of connection and interaction is huge and can really set the foundation for how we engage them in any type of treatment. That would make sense. Like you're saying, it's by knowing that you really know how to engage with them on a different way because you're likely, I would imagine, going to approach somebody in a more that's more in a preoccupied state in therapy different than somebody who may be more dismissive they're going to approach that relationship uh, with a therapist completely different 
Entirely differently. Yes. So if you're doing one model fits all, this is the, like what you were mentioning, Brad, everybody goes through this process. You're really missing the undercurrent of what really helps somebody relate and learn how to connect in a way that's more secure. Absolutely. I think another kind of level of that connection can really happen in a group setting, whether you're in a residential treatment setting or a group therapy setting or an AA meeting. You know, when you notice you're aware of your attachment style coming into the room with you when you enter a 12-step meeting, you kind of already know what to look for when approaching new people and trying to develop connections when you're in early recovery, which is a really vulnerable time. You can also ask other people to help point those things out to you. You know, you can rely on other people that are going through the exact same process you are in terms of recovery, but have their individual differences to point out when, hey, I noticed that you left the meeting earlier the other night. You know, what was that about? Were you kind of falling back into some old things because I I know this about you. I've observed this behavior before. If you're able to go into a situation and be open and honest with others about that attachment style and those, those, you know, patterns that we all have as human beings and allow other people to see you, they can really aid in your recovery and help you get the most out of it. Oh, I love that. What you're saying is kind of getting back to what Brad was mentioning about the collaborative part, you know, and even that they would learn about their own style and know why they're running out and avoiding or getting preoccupied. Cause I guess if they don't know that they can say, Oh, it's cause this meeting is this. I mean, we always have that defensive style to say, we always explain what we're doing, you know, through our own narrative and interpretation. And we don't know that we are scared to connect to our sponsor because we have a more blue style or we're scared. Our sponsor won't call us back because we, we're, we're a little bit more preoccupied. It really could affect the way we engage in treatment. Definitely. Right. That awareness can make all the difference. But but what you're saying is the awareness of both the treatment person and the individual. I love that y'all are bringing that out. That's so exciting. I think, it. you know, we think of that as the best treatment is co-created. The idea that I'm going to invite you into the process because I'm not the expert of your mind. You're the expert of your mind. And maybe I can guide you towards some things that have historically worked well for individuals seeking to be in recovery or to break these addictive patterns. But I am in no way going to take this assumptive, all-knowing stance about what is going to work for you without your input. We earlier on talked about agency. What an empowering way to bring agency into treatment is to continually work with that person to build the best coping strategy, which is the ability to think about, think for themselves and about themselves differently. And I I really liked what you guys were saying about that idea of being transparent. And then the other part to that is to be accountable. And the transparent part, I think, is putting it into terms of being like forewarned is forearmed is the way I think about it. And if I know, hey, uh, when I get defensive, I do X, Y, and Z, then I can kind of prepare myself for that. Now, how cool would it be if I could also prepare the people I'm working with and that that are supporting me to expect that as well? That's a different level of accountability than saying like what you started with, go to meetings Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, go to therapy on these days. Absolutely, you can show up, but who's showing up? Is it that false compliant self or is it the transparent, honest, willing, and open me? That's what we're hoping for because that's going to... You know, there's a lot of research that talks about that type, whether it's a common factor study or other things, talks about that leading to the best outcomes in therapy. 
Well, you guys have, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that you both work for the Driftwood Recovery Program. And so let's use that as an example. I know that y'all's knowledge expands way beyond that, but y'all have really been a, a big part of developing these parts in your treatment program, which is what excites us at Therapist Uncensored. But you have different levels of treatment. You have, we, we've been using the vernacular outpatient, residential, et cetera, as if, you know, but there may be some listeners that don't even know the difference between that. So to clarify, when we're saying outpatient, you're meaning to go to maybe see an individual therapist. AA group is a, a non-therapeutic, but great, amazing support network. And then there's a couple of different levels of care. So would y'all use as an example so that people understand what level of care do you guys have there so that people can understand that? Use your program as an example, if you would. And then how do I decide if I'm a listener out there, which level of care I need? You know, we start off with the full continuum from detox, where someone is physically needing medical assistance to come off of certain substances safely. And so that's a pretty severe addiction, obviously. And that would happen at a residential level of care. Residential, I think you might think of the idea of an optimal healing environment, a sanctuary, some words like that along those lines, where you have a place where people feel very safe and secure. They're working on establishing that attachment to themselves and understanding what is really going on in my life, which may take a while because of the impact that substances may have had on someone's brain. And the physiology takes a while to return to our optimal thinking. The community's ready-made there is the way I think about it. So you're going to get inserted into a very small community where you can get to know people. You can hear for yourself that you're not alone, and you can have a staff that feels like a very supportive, non-judgmental group, from the chefs to the therapist. And many people are very sensitive, given the trauma histories, to the hierarchy of authority figures and other things. So we've tried to create an environment that feels like, hey, we're all on the same page. We are truly co-creating a path forward. And it takes your buy-in as well. It's not just our expertise that's going to help you to get there. So that would be the one that would be on a continuum of care from seeking individual therapy by therapists out there to a residential where you've gotten to a place of, with, of, of tolerance and withdrawal symptoms where you would go residential. Would you go resident? Would we consider going residential if I didn't have the issues of withdrawal and that, that level of detox needed? Possibly, because then you'd have that intensity of therapy to rapidly address not just the diagnostic issues, which Vanessa can speak to, but also to get to that level of what we conceptualizes a core issue, which is the end result or outcome of co-creating a narrative around what's getting in the way. And so many people choose to come to that environment because they really want to put a lot of time, energy, and engagement into creating that understanding of what's getting in the way. I also think of the residential level as a level of care where you're still feeling shaky about your ability to handle being out in the world and abstaining from substances. You know, you need the safe environment and the support of other individuals to make sure that uh, you have the coping skills necessary to deal with, with certain stressors and relationships and environments that, that might still feel pretty anxiety provoking for you. 
And then you might consider stepping down to what we might call a partial hospitalization level of care where you're maybe still living in a a sober living environment or maybe at home, but you're going to group and individual treatment five days a week. And so your job at that time is treatment. You are really engaged, still a high frequency of therapy sessions and and group sessions and really still working on those coping skills. But there's a little bit more of that self-trust and confidence there that you can return maybe to your home environment or be out in the world doing, you know, going to restaurants and doing social activities without reaching for a substance. Then once you're, you know, kind of feeling like, all right, I'm getting, I'm back on my A game here, you might want to step down to what we would call an intensive outpatient level. And sometimes people step down to that from a a partial hospitalization level where they're going to maybe three sessions a week of individual and and group therapy, and they're maybe re-entering a work environment, maybe taking some college courses. They're starting to re-engage in those areas of their lives that they've had to maybe put on hold while they've been in residential treatment. Another situation might be that someone has been out in the world. You know, they've maybe been abusing substances or starting to kind of engage in some problematic behavior, but they're not to the level of severity where they need residential treatment. So they might actually enter treatment at the intensive outpatient level of care and be able to manage that frequency pretty well. As long as they have a supportive community around them, they might be able to really work on their coping behaviors and and stay sober. Then when we step down from intensive outpatient to strictly an outpatient level of care, that can take various forms, really. Depending on the individual, they might want to continue with, you know, meeting with a therapy group once a week and having an individual session once a week and also engaging in a recovery program like AA and working with a sponsor. They might want to do one individual session of therapy each week to continue shoring up their coping skills and, you know, working on maybe even continue working on trauma and things like that. And they might be spending the majority of their time with their families and working and doing other things that are really meaningful to them and and really regaining those connections that we've been talking about. So outpatient therapy, I think, can really take various forms of intensity and frequency, but the majority of the person's time is spent in the world doing the things that they love to do. So how do you decide? So you you guys stepped us down from the most significant, most uh, intensive to the least, And so we could go, depending on what level, from the most extreme, and then I can see the sort of the step-down process to help somebody get connected and go from a a very secure uh, therapeutic environment that gives you lots of support to stepping down and stepping down and stepping down to more integration in the community and yet still continuing to integrate what you've learned and to kind of take that out into the world. And then I imagine... What you're saying is, is that can then somebody coming into the system, even let's just say, again, I'm going to use Driftwood as an example. How would I know? Could I also just start? You mentioned I could just start with the residential, I mean, with the outpatient. How would I know, you know, how would I figure out how to start? Like what, what, which program I would need? There's so many resources out there and, you know, 
definitely jump in, Brad. I think that there are really useful tools. I mean, we've got technology to our fingertips to find really useful tools to search for the types of programs that might be most effective. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration is a program where we can go online and find resources to connect us to different points of entry into treatment and find quality therapists and treatment programs all over the country that might suit our needs. And we'll have that in the show notes. Absolutely. The National Institute on Drug Abuse is another organization that can point us in the right direction with resources. I think, you know, kind of a maybe a less kind of mental healthy addiction-y resource might be going to your general practitioner, you know, talking to your family doctor about what's going on with you and what you might be dealing with and understanding what resources they have and what connections they have, because, you know, that might be a person that you have a, a good close relationship with that you could ask for resources. I know sometimes there are people are nervous to do that because they're scared to have something in their medical record that says, that they're struggling with with any kind of substances. Can you all speak to that for a second? Is there anything you could tell me if I'm out there thinking about doing that, but I'm afraid that could give me some confidence to do that? Yeah, I think that understanding that your confidentiality is going to be protected, right? And that if you're feeling uncomfortable in a medical setting, make an appointment with a therapist. I like a kind of neutral third party to tell, you know, kind of inform me versus, you know, unfortunately addiction treatment has become big business in some areas. And so kind of working with a therapist or someone who's knowledgeable about the addiction or mental health treatment world to inform you about the pros and cons of each modality. There are many different modalities when you look out there and not everything is what it appears on the internet, unfortunately. And back to your question, too, about someone could just be a curious misuser of substances and maybe jumps into outpatient and just has some therapy by some people that really have some expertise and knowledge of both attachment and addiction and helps figure out maybe that's what they need and that's a successful path forward. Maybe they need a little more support. So you can work with people that are really knowledgeable about this field because it is kind of, it's riddled with jargon. It's riddled with a lot of proprietary influences that may or may not actually indicate what level of treatment or what your needs are as an individual. And the best model is what's going to flex for you, right? It's what's going to really flex to understand you and your family system and the outcome that you want out of treatment. And other people may want other things out of treatment, but understanding what your needs are outside of, hey, I'm going to abstain from X substance. I love what you're saying, that there's lots of jargon. And I think for any of us that goes to an internet search of something, you can get so inundated between just getting past the line that says sponsored down to something that says this is informative. And I can imagine if I'm I'm scared because it's me or, or someone that I love, getting a little overwhelmed with this process of this podcast, I hope has really been helpful. It's one reason why we wanted to do it. And we appreciate you guys gratefully for coming on because it's a way I think of getting um, really substantive information that you can trust. Okay. So we will have in our show notes, some resources possibly for you to guys to go to, to kind of look at uh, different programs in the area, but y'all have done a great job kind of giving a nugget of what you would look for as a, an informed consumer. If you were calling to interview an individual therapist or a treatment program in your area, whether it be outpatient or inpatient. But as an informed consumer, what are some things that y'all think are really essential 
in a treatment program for addiction that uh, y'all would highly recommend? I certainly think that having different evidence-based modalities of therapy is essential because people have various different issues that they're wanting to look at when they come into treatment. And as we were sharing earlier, really addressing the full person and the whole context of their lives involves approaching these different things in a skilled way. So for example, when we're talking about trauma, we want to make sure to ask questions of the the treatment program that involve, you know, how many trauma therapists do you have on staff and, and And what is their level of training? One method of therapy that is evidence-based to treat trauma is called eye movement and desensitization and reprocessing therapy, or EMDR for short. And we can, you know, offer resources on that to find a certified EMDR therapist who will help address trauma. Also asking, what is your experience in working with attachment? You know, what, what is your approach in weaving that into treatment and how will that help me in working on my addiction and staying sober? So making sure that you're informed about what types of therapeutic skills the staff at a treatment center needs to have to effectively treat what, what you're working on is important. I think too, just asking questions about, can I use my phone and laptop? You know, what is, what is the age range of the group that you currently have at your treatment center? How many residents do you have right now? You know, I think sometimes treatment centers might advertise that they have a robust community of residents when maybe they have, you know, very few people that are actually in the treatment center and there's not much of a group component knowing whether the group therapy is separate from the residents and knowing if you're going to be living with males and females or just with females or just with males. All of those components are good questions to ask. I think getting a broad feel for what that environment and experience is going to be like is really part of being an informed consumer. And if we're talking about addiction and attachment, I would want to know specifically, what are you doing to help me attach to a recovery lifestyle? In the end, addiction and recovery are a very personal journey. And having the resources and the skill and expertise to help understand the journey you've been on, but also to co-create a path forward and to make it personal and to make it feel like this is my journey versus this is a path to recovery that may or may may feel more like an elective outside of your major than the true passion that you're following to recapture the person that you want to be. It takes a lot of tools in the toolkit to be able to do that. So you, you need people that understand trauma, that understand the co-occurring rates of mental health and addiction are really high. They're in the 50 to 60% range, depending on which study you're reading. So you need people that are knowledgeable about that field as well, because it's likely that that might be part of the process. And part of understanding a recovery lifestyle and fostering new attachments is the ability to bring those loved ones and stakeholders into treatment. How are they going to join you in this process so that you're not doing it alone? And that becomes an exciting part of the, the journey. Oh, that's so helpful. And I really love that y'all, that when you mentioned some of the trauma work and the EMDR and the somatic reprocessing and how essential that is as a part of the integration. So y'all are really speaking from a very integrated approach. So looking for a treatment program that is as integrated as you guys are talking about that yours is, is I think so important. So 
Anyway, y'all have brought a wealth of knowledge to our listeners. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming and Thank you being so much. a part of, of Therapist Uncensored. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is our pleasure to thank some of our patrons. We have a brand new co-executive producer, Platinum NeuroNerd, Sally Munir. Thank you so much for joining us. We also have some gold NeuroNerds, Donna Woods, Carmen Carpenter, Claire Holberton, and Keith Ray. Thank you very much. We also have an anonymous that starts with a T in the gold section, so thank you. And then we've got several others. We're not going to do everything today, but we do have some in the super nerd category. Tim Wisniewski, hello out there. Thank you. And Yvonne Quinn, we so appreciate it. And we will continue to call out some of our excellent supporters. We've got more on here, but we, you know, we respect your time. And uh, we're going to get to everybody. All right. Thank you so much. And if you want to join in, of course, please do. Patreon.com backslash Therapist Uncensored. And uh, there you can hook up. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks for listening to Therapist Uncensored. This is Ann Kelly, and we'll see you around the bend. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson. 